time for another edition of Tennis.com's weekly podcast. And here's your host, James Martin. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. It's the letters edition. We're going to be taking all of your, well, not all of yours, but a selected bunch of the better letters and answering them with uh, Pete Bodo and Steve Tigner. I'm James Martin. And guys, we got a really meaty letter for the first one that I wanted to get into. Um, basically, on the, on the suspensions, you have Wickmeyer and Melise, the two Belgian players. And the person, and let me get his or her name here. It was um, uh, Kevin Scott asked, What's really going on with the Wickmeyer Melises or Melise, and do you think it's unfair that they're being persecuted simply for not showing up for their drug tests? And just briefly, what happened there, as far as my understanding is, and you guys can correct me, is that they didn't show up for their drug tests. A Flemish, Flemish, Flemish court basically gave them a one-year ban from tennis. They appealed it. An injunction was given. So they basically can play. And now WADA is, and there's a hearing and it won't be happening until next April 2011, where they're going to decide if that one-year ban should be brought back. WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, has gotten involved. They want a two-year ban. And, of course, Wickmeyer and Melise will be in this hearing next year asking that there be no ban because they just didn't show up for a test. Obviously, the drug, the, the drug enforcement rules, uh, you have to show up for your test. But, I mean, is this... Well, correct me if I'm wrong, though. It's really about the whereabouts rule them failing to report where they're going to be, not about not showing up for a test. It wasn't like they said they had to show up for a test and they didn't show up. But it was their third, right? Wickmeyer had, uh, on three different occasions, failed to notify the authorities that uh, of her whereabouts so that she could be tested in the event they chose to test her because this was presumably out of competition testing. Right, I mean... So I think there's two two issues that, on the basic rules, if if they broke the rule, then they have to serve serve the time if they knew the rule and they broke it there um, goes that question then <laughs> then they then they, <laughs> they're done you know justice is served but then the second question is whether there should be this whereabouts rule and if it's too intrusive to force these players every day of their lives to tell drug authorities exactly where they're going to be which i personally think it is I, I don't know where the line should be drawn exactly but i feel like it's it's too much to ask of these players to to do this every day I mean, do you think that's it's too onerous, Pete? Well, I don't know. I think I think Wickmeyer's big argument really was that there were also there were the protocols for this whole reporting process weren't really you know well spelled out. That you know she sent an email and you know, but it became look. I'm sick of the people in in, in who get nabbed with these drug testing, who who get crushed in these drug testing issues. I'm a little tired of them always always coming up with some kind of elaborate excuses for everything. You know, look, maybe it's correct. The point is, why were all the other players able to report their whereabouts? Why didn't why isn't why isn't the rest of the tour all in an uproar because they're they're unable to report their whereabouts. Look, uh, look, the girl dropped the ball. In my opinion, she clearly dropped the ball. She may have just blown it off. She may have just be young enough to think, oh, you know, uh, I don't do any drugs. I don't have to, you know, I don't, I don't even have to report on this. So whatever, the, the fact of the matter is, though, if you're going ha- to have the rule, you've got to enforce the rule. So if the whereabouts rule says you've got to tell these people where you're going to be at all times, and if you don't do it, unless you could really show there was some big flaw in the system that prevented not only you but other people from complying, then you don't really have much, much of a leg to stand on. This is a dog ate my, this is a dog ate my homework kind of situation. Swift justice at the tennis pond. I like it. All right. Well, there that, that takes care of that question. The next one, going off something we uh, talked about about a week ago, this one's from Clarice Sullivan, and she asks, you guys were talking about the commitment of players in the last pod. Don't you think it looks bad that Ivanovich, or at least you have to call into question her motivation and direction, when Anna shows up all but naked in SI, 
Uh, editor's note, I'm not complaining about that. Um, but then can't win a match. The parallels to Kornikova are incredible, and, it's, and it looks like it's a last-ditch last effort for her and her management to cash in on her looks while people sort of kind of care about her. It looks bad, but was showing up for one photo shoot the reason she's having trouble uh, tossing her serve? I don't think so. I think she works hard, and she is committed, and she's embarrassed by not playing well. It's bad timing that she's playing so poorly and that this came out, but I, don't, I wouldn't say that, that's, that, that the two are connected. Do you think her management team, though, should have said, because this was probably done, what, three, four months ago, five months ago, and, and when she was still clearly struggling and said, hey, you know what, Anna? Maybe don't do this You're not playing one. well. Maybe you don't do this. I mean, I, I agree with what you said, Steve, but I, I do think that for management team, it's a double-edged sword. Look, it's great publicity to show yourself in an SI swimsuit issue. On the other hand, maybe her management team could have said this is not going to look great as far as the message you're sending out to the tennis world that you're, you're posing in, in, in a bikini and yet you're not winning matches. No, I don't know. You know, it's a, I got no problem whatsoever with Ivanovic. Frankly, you know, I, I, honestly, it's kind of funny. I, I, I find, I, I find Yankovic more attractive office, than, yes. than I find Ivanovic. Oh, so oh. I don't go for the Ivanovic thing, I guess. But, you know, the thing is I have no problem with this girl. She's, you know, she, she, I think she works awful hard. She's always worked hard. She's getting buffeted around. You know, if you pull a plug on a photo shoot, well, you know, I mean, how would you feel going into this girl and saying, hey, listen, you know, you better not, you better not do this photo shoot you know, that's, you know, because, you know, you're playing like, like you stink. It's like saying, right. don't go to the movies, you know, you stink. So, you know, I, I think that would just, you know, make things worse rather than better. I think basically, look, there are parallel tracks here in all these players' careers. Let's face it, she's an attractive young girl. You know, she's got opportunities. Besides the court, maybe takes her mind off her things. I don't see there's an issue I there I think it was all. also true for Kornikova. I don't really buy the idea that she, she went down because she was unfocused. She, Harold Solomon was her coach, and he's his... He's famous for being a tough coach, and he always said that she worked hard, but I think she brought extra pressure on herself, or there was just extra pressure from who she was more than a normal player. And I remember watching her play, and you could, you could feel that she felt the pressure um, from the crowd, and that, that was a big part of her One problem. other thing here that, that I think is, is kind of interesting to note, and you know, I'm not a big movie buff. Uh, you know, I don't know that much about the pop movie culture and stuff, but... You know, if you have, you know, somebody like a Jennifer Aniston or, or uh, Jennifer Lopez or somebody, if their last movie bombs, do people get all over their cases because they go and do a photo shoot in a magazine or something? No. I mean, you know, the point is, you know, they're just two, you know, there's two separate things here. These people have, you know, two different careers. It'd be well, nice it's to actually see they dovetail, though. I mean, the, they can. The, movie, the movie stars are, are doing those photo shoots to promote the movies and to promote their career because they're, they're one and the same. These are a little bit different because you're doing a photo shoot in a bikini as an athlete, not to enhance your tennis career. You're doing it to enhance your image after tennis, perhaps. You're doing it to enhance your pocketbook. You're not doing it to enhance your career, per se. It's certainly not your tennis career. There's no, a difference. I think, think they go hand in hand. but Well, maybe. But, I mean, I don't think anyone's complaining about the <laughs> SI swim issue this year. It was uh, actually good with Brooklyn Decker as well. Um, another person wrote in from PA. doesn't say where, Steve, but your neck of the woods. Lori Hunter. Of course, you... You know this person. Mm -hmm. Everyone in PA knows Williamsport. everybody. Ten people go. in Pennsylvania. Yeah, go Williamsport. <laughs> and this one, uh, a lot of people have been talking about this, and it's, is a calendar year Grand Slam possible for Fed and Serena? Well, obviously it's possible. They won Australia. I guess the, the question they were really asking is, do we think it's going to happen? Do we think, could this actually be the year where Federer wins all four in the, in the same year? What I would say the Federer could do it. The la even last year, which was sort of, a, I mean, it wasn't a down year, but it wasn't his very best year. He was two sets away from winning the Grand Slam. He's been, he's been in that position two other times. So, I, you know, he's won Wimbledon six times. He's won the U.S. Open five times. There's no reason 
to think he can't win those again. It'll come down to the French Open. For and, him. and the doll. Right. I mean, French Open and the doll. Do I hear an asterisk being applied uh, to this no. discussion here? <laughs> <laughs> let's face it. I mean, yeah, if, let's if, face if it. The doll right. is not playing at 100%. It's going to help Federer's chances, although, and Del is out with a wrist injury now, though he should be back um, in plenty of time to be in good, good shape for the French. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Serena, I think, is also the one we've talked about. She's not done well at the French recent, in recent years, and, and that's going to be a big hurdle for her, but I think she's going to be pretty motivated. You know, it's not her surface of choice to come in and really do well at the French. And if either of these guys win the French, then it, things are going to change dramatically in the, in the way we think about what they can do for the season. I don't think Serena moves well enough these days to win the French. Uh, she can't, I mean, I shouldn't say she can't win the French. She certainly can't. She can win any tournament ever. But, uh, but you know, I, I really have questions about whether she could move well enough. You know, one of the things about the French these days, and it's true, I think more, it's increasingly true for the women, it's been true for the men for a little while, is that you don't just need to be one or two people who are good on that surface and who have special talents on that surface. You've got to beat a whole bunch of them. You got to, yeah, you're going to run into, you know, probably three, four people along the way who can really, really exploit whatever, you know, weakness or, or deficit you have there. And so I, I, th- I think it'd be tough uh, if she's if she's on her game and hitting her shots. Yeah, because she's going to end points in three, four strokes, and that can be done. It can be done at the French Open, as we've seen a couple of times. And, and she did win four straight slams. She won the Serena right. Slam once, but I think it'll depend on her, well, her health going into the French. And but I think she will be more motivated to win this one this year. Because she's now she's won five Australian, she's won one French Open. It is a, it's not a hole in her resume, but if it's the closest thing to it. The what? other thing to factor in here is that this discussion takes on and goes to an entirely different level. You know, that's you know sort of mul- many multiples more than it is now. In the event that somebody ends up winning the first three, the the amount of pressure on anybody who wins the first three is going to be just insane. I think the biggest, I would say, I would not say that the biggest, you know, obstacle to either of them winning a slam is, you know, a, is a surface issue, how well they perform at a surface, or a style issue. I think the biggest obstacle is, are they going to be able to withstand the unbelievable pressure if they do happen to win the first three? Yeah, it would be amazing to, to see when they come into the U.S. Open, uh, the kind of pressure on that would be incredible. Is there... I guess except for Hennen, for looking at Serena, there's, we don't really have a clay court specialist on the women's tour. We don't have an Arantxa Sanchez, somebody that <clears throat> would just stay out there, run, moon balls, et cetera. We don't, don't really have that. I mean, Nadal obviously is the king of clay, but certainly on the women's side, outside of Hennen, um, there's really no one that you really pinpoint, is there, that you can say, oh, this is the one person Serena has to watch out for. It's really, as Pete was saying, just there are some girls that are going to be able to move better than her. Well, Justine at the French. That's she's, what I'm saying. That's the that's, only one. That's the one you would say that she's... That it's unlikely, unlikely for her to win the French because Justine's going to be there. Okay, I think Azarenka's a threat to her. I think any girl. Look, Serena. One of the, Serena's biggest advantages is her serve, and you know that serve is just not going to be as good on clay because nobody's is. So I mean, right, right off the bat there, I think you're also now you bring Azarenka into this discussion. Uh, I think you've got a Wickmire, you know, who's got to be brought in. It. And let's not forget Kim Kleisters, who's who's always played incredibly well on clay. Plus, as you say, Kuznetsova. That's right. And going from clay to grass, someone wrote in. He says, are you, and who is this someone, I should say, a Paul Johnson. And he asks the pod, are you as mystified as me as to why the grass court season is so short? It does not even have a master's event. Do you think that by shortening the hard court season, which is currently played over the spring and summer autumn, and lengthening the grass court season, we might well see a reduction of injuries suffered by players? Well, that's possible. That's the big bottleneck in the, in the um, schedule. But the reason Wimbledon doesn't change is because the BBC wants it, wants it over those two weeks. It's part of their summer series of sporting events and, and Wimbledon fits in fits into that slot so they they won't go later for that reason and the French Open is held over a holiday in France and it comes at the end of the clay court season they, it's it's cold weather 
in Paris in, in early May, so it's unlikely for that, for that tournament to move either. And Australia obviously has their holiday, which is why they don't want to move, and the U.S. Open has their holiday. It's a tough thing, right, Pete? Something, something tells me that if you had, if, if, you know, the, the reality is those tournaments are not going to move. So then you're looking at having a couple of grass court tournaments after Wimbledon to make a circuit, and I, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, they have happen. Newport, which is just a, kind of a one-off uh, kind of fun tournament. I would like to see, and I've, I've said this before, I, 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 I think the hard courts in Australia are good, but I, I would love there to be a real discussion about getting rid of the hard courts for the U.S. season and going to clay. I know some people don't like that, but I think clay produces better tennis, more enjoyable tennis. The Australian Open notwithstanding, that court's better than the U.S. Open court. I don't think the summer hard court series in the U.S. produces uh, the most aesthetically pleasing tennis, particularly compared to the grass and clay that we come off of. It's kind of a letdown to me. But it is the traditional U.S. surface. I mean, there used to be a U.S. clay court series right. um, in, in the 70s and early 80s, but I would say the traditional U.S. surface is the hard court. And the tra- traditional oh, the European tradition. continental surface is the clay court, so it, it, it would be it would it makes sense in, in this system. Yeah, but hardcore tennis isn't what it used to be. I mean, the hardcore tennis is, is is as entertaining, if not more so. To me, it's more entertaining, frankly, because the, the, the way the courts have been slowed down, you're getting a lot more rallies. Nobody's going out there and serving bullets and, and ending matches, you know, in, in the old-fashioned way. So, I mean, I, I think there's not a, not a thing. In fact, I think hardcore... I, Tennis is the best. I think the U.S. Open, for instance, gives you... Do you think the Open is better than the Australian Open or as far as the... the I do, yeah, better? because I think the U.S. Open surface is a little bit little bit slicker. It tilts the field a little bit more toward shot-making and aggressive tennis. Uh, you know, the Australian Open, I think, is a more live surface. It produces, you know, kind of a higher bounce, and, and it gives the big topspin guys a little bit, little, little bit more room to work. But I think, you know, I, I like the U.S. Open. I like, I like striking that balance between attacking, aggressive, and defensive baseline play. I guess I'm a, a man among none on that, but I'm not going to give up my, my push for clay courts in the U.S. Our last question, uh, and it is from Sean Fassett, or Fawcett, and he wants to know, talking about Sharapova, Azarenka, Serena, and this is a question that, and, and a complaint that has been going on for at least a decade now, certainly with the onset of Celis. Is the grunting tactical or is it natural? Is, is what these girls do out there, obviously, it's, it's caused to hit your mute buttons at times because it can get grading, but why are these girls doing it? He wants to know, and, and I would say it's natural, but I think it is, as is at times, also tactical. I would agree. I think it's almost always, I think it's a natural reaction. It seems to come on when, they, when as a match goes on and, and during important points, and I don't think that's tactical. I think it's just the intensity comes out at those moments. I mean... I, maybe. I mean, I, I've seen so many matches with someone like Serena, and she's quiet for games. And yes, the, the match becomes more important at a certain stage, but then all of a sudden she'll just start screaming at her shots. And, it, you know, I mean, it just seems a little too calculated to me that it's it's just purely out of the intensity of the moment. And they, they asked something there. Um, Michelle Larcher Debrito last year was asked a bunch of times at Wimbledon about it, and she said, and I believe her, that she didn't really even, she couldn't control it. It was just something that she'd always done. It was part of her game. You know, it's kind of like you stand in front of the mirror, you know, uh, you know, after you've just, like, you know, let's say you called a girl who actually agreed to go on a date with you, and you scream, who's the man? I'm the man. You know, that's, it, right. that, that's what it is. You know, it's that kind of a reaction. I think it's a natural reaction. The only thing, place I think it becomes a problem, and I think it's legitimate, a couple of players have said, that you know the, the shout is now the scream is now so prolonged it goes that long. they yeah. not only cannot hear the ball coming off the opponent's racket they can't hear the ball coming off their racket when they reply to the shot and I think that's that's a legitimate complaint I think noise you know noise is a distraction and the rules against you know d- you know distractions to play that but is true whether it's tactical or not they they shouldn't if it is a distraction it sh- they shouldn't be able to do it well it's, it would be under the hindrance rule right and that's in, in a, but the problem with that is 
that's different though. That's that's, that's deliberate. That has to be deliberate. So, so is there something under the rules that can just say you can't do this because a noise rule? They talked about it the past few years, but nothing's been done. Yeah, I yeah, mean, the umpire should just look down and scream, "Shut up!" <laughs> <laughs> well, they tried to muffle Celis and they did that Wimbledon match famously, and then she ends up losing. So um, I'm sure none of the girls would would want to. And they used to teach it, you know, when when you hear Celis talk about it, you know, they used to teach the grunting as part of a breathing probably have a way to, to hit the ball hard, but I, I still think there's some tactical. Yeah, if you go out there as a recreational player, if you're if you're one of those strong, silent types out there, folks, and you're a recreational player, go out there sometimes and let it rip with a big scream when you're hitting a ball. You're going to think you're hitting a ball 50 miles an hour faster than you are. I mean, there is definitely a value. There's a self, there's kind of a self-medicating, a self-intensifying value there to is. it. And hopefully it'll be a good shot. Yeah, yeah hopefully. I'll go in the net. I, I, do I can't see Steve doing those. Can you, can you, James? No, no, I don't. He doesn't make those. He doesn't like to, to put too much effort on the court. He just looks graceful. Steve's a silent assassin. And also, if you're going to do it, do it at break point to, to annoy your, your opponent because I'm telling you, sometimes that's what's going on. But uh, that does it for our letters in this edition of the podcast. Keep them coming to tennis at, excuse me, podcast at tennis.com. And uh, we'll answer some more in the coming weeks as we uh, go along. For Peter Bodo and Steve Tigner, I'm Jonas Martin, and uh, we'll talk to you later. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.